Welcome. You're listening to Women's Health and Beyond with Dr. David Goslin, the only podcast for women providing a physician's point of view on everything relating to women's health, sexual medicine, and cosmetic gynecology. Get ready to discover the latest and hottest topics in women's health and how they relate to you. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. David Goslin, and on today's podcast, we're going to take a little bit of a shift and go away from typical quote-unquote women's health and talk about skincare. And on the show today, I have a good friend of mine and colleague, Dr. Daniel Baruzin, who is from Los Angeles. He practices both in Santa Monica, California, as well as in Beverly Hills. He's beyond well accomplished, and I'm going to let him brag a little bit. Uh, because I don't think I can do you justice, Daniel. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the basics of skincare, everyday skincare. And we're approaching the summer months now, and I want to know a little bit more about how to protect my skin during these hot days, as well as about some of the novel treatments you're offering your patients in order to stay rejuvenated and looking young and beautiful. So let's get right into it. Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear perfectly. Thanks, Dr. Goslin, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, these are a lot of fun to do. I think, you know, you and I have very similar backgrounds, but very different training. And um, we often get asked questions that are outside of our comfort zone. And so it's nice to learn from each other. And so thank you for having me on. Oh, um, absolutely. Just as a quick background, like you said, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. I went to high school in, in LA. I did my undergrad and med school both at UCLA. And, uh, and then I did my residency training first at Cedar sinai in internal medicine, followed by dermatology. Again, at the combined UCLA and King and Harbor programs and County Hospital here in Los Angeles. And then I went on and did a one-year uh, fellowship in Mohs surgery, which is a uh, treatment for skin cancer in Houston, Texas, um, at a Methodist Hospital. And uh, I came back to LA, took a full-time position at UCLA doing Mohs surgery. And that kind of evolved into my own practice about 16 years ago. And here we are, and um, we do a lot of different things in the office. Like you said, we do some general dermatology. I do a lot of skin surgery and skin cancer. And I've always had a big interest in cosmetics. And I think growing up in LA and going to school in LA and, and, and training in LA, it goes without say, people demand these things. And so, you know, my, my background in most surgery and skin surgery on the head and neck in general, kind of opened up those doors for me and made it very a simple transition for me to start incorporating those kind of treatments into my practice even more. That's terrific. Daniel, you didn't know this, but I actually spent my a year as well at uh, Houston at Baylor. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, yeah, I lived in Rice Village. Oh, and well, so it I. was it was an amazing medical center and a great experience. I, I did my very first two-step two-step dancing club over there. Yeah. And it was really a culture shock when I first moved from Los Angeles to Houston. Because I remember I would get into an elevator and here in Los Angeles, you're in an elevator. And the first thing you do is stare at your phone and pretend you're looking at an email that's so important where, I mean, this is a long time ago, so I'm assuming it's still happening today. But in Texas, I would step into an elevator and it, everybody would acknowledge your presence. And when you'd walk into a patient room, it was a yes, ma'am. No, sir, yes, kind sir. of approach. Not to greet you when you walk. Yeah, that's right. So very, very different than what we're used to here. People open doors, and very. Uh, I really enjoyed that aspect of Texas. It, too, it was a big culture shock for me and my wife. We moved out to Texas 
two days after we got married. And so, you know, we did a rush wedding to get out to my fellowship. And when we got there, the, the craziest thing happened the first day we were there, we were lost. And those days, there were no navigation systems in the car. And, you know, Houston's a really weird city with that loop that goes all the way around. And yeah. we kind of pulled up next to somebody and kind of said, hey, can you give us directions? And he said, pull over. He pulled the car over and got out of the car. My wife got so nervous, she said, lock the doors. Something bad's gonna happen. He got out of the car to give us uh, you know, directions. So it's a whole different etiquette and, and lifestyle. It was a very good experience, I agree with you. Yeah, it was, it was both from a medical training perspective uh, if any, if anybody of you know, Baylor Center is absolutely amazing, and there's so many hospitals right on top of each other in that little center. They're all connected. They really, they're all connected, and it's really the best of the best. So you know, Dan, I as an OBGYN, and and as my audience knows, I specialize in in cosmetic GYN. I always get asked, um, what do I do in regards to my skin, and do you have a daily regimen you recommend? And I really, I, I, I always shy away from giving answers because it's not my specialty. And that's why I wanted you on the show to give us some of your professional tips and recommendations on, we all want to stay young. Uh, and so how, what would you recommend, depending on, on, on your age bracket, what you should be doing on a daily basis in order to maintain good health, good skin care? So I, I think Dave, that's a great question. It's actually very easy for me to answer. You know, I can tell you as a consumer and as a patient, it can be very confusing though, because if you go online and start looking for products, there is an endless amount of information. And there are companies like Sephora and Nordstrom and Bloomingdale's and everyone pumping out products because it's a huge industry. But the truth is when we talk about cosmeceuticals and we talk about things that you can buy over the counter without a prescription, there are very few things that have scientific fact, you know, based evidence-based medicine behind them that helps you decide, is this really worth the money I'm spending to put on my face? There's certainly something to be said about you using a cream on your face because it just feels good. There's nothing wrong about that, with that. But if you're really trying to use a cream or a lotion or a potion or whatever it is you're putting on your face to help rejuvenate the skin, there's a couple of things we can do that we do that can really work and we know are your money, money's worth. The most important thing for you to use on your skin, and without doubt in my mind, is a sunscreen. If you're not using a sunscreen, all those UV rays that are hitting your skin day after day after day, break down collagen, you get what we call solar elastosis, which is basically you know, thinning of the skin, loss of collagen, loosening of the skin, and with time, it puts you at risk for skin cancer as well, which is a whole different story. But it does cause aging. So if you're not using a sunscreen, and you're out there tanning your face day, out, day in and day out like we do in Los Angeles, you're doing yourself a disservice. So first and foremost, first and foremost, you should be using the sunscreen. Once you've decided to do that, and I think these things apply to people of any age. So they apply to your teenagers, and then they apply to your elderly patients, but to a different extent. The next thing I usually recommend to my patients is a retinol or retinoid of some sort. And retinols come in over the counter strength, and then retinoids, that we can prescribe as doctors as well, like retinoin or retin-A. But the retinols that you can get over the counter work as well. And what they do is that you use them at nighttime, they can be very irritating, but if you use them sparingly and you use them at nighttime, and I'll explain why in a second, they are the drugs that turn on the mechanism for your body to produce collagen. So to create a cellular turnover, you get rid of 
old skin and you turn on the mechanism to make collagen. So that's the first thing I like to add to my patient's regimen. Now, younger patients use retinoids as well for acne, so it helps acne as well. It helps with you know, building collagen, so it's good for that as well. And there's evidence also that retinoids help prevent skin cancer because they're creating a cellular turnover of skin naturally. So you have no reason not to be using retinoids. The downside of the retinoids is that some people's skin just gets irritated from it. So they can be very drying. They can be photosensitizing. I Meaning if you put them on and go in the sun, some people's skin can get a sunburn type reaction. But we like to use them at nighttime and we use them sparingly. And for patients that can't tolerate them every night, then I just tell patients to use them whenever they want, like three times a week or four times a week, or even once a week is better than nothing. So almost every company out there that you can find that makes a skincare line is going to make a retinoid of some sort, a retinol of some sort. So it's really a function of finding one that's gentle to your skin and your skin can tolerate. And not that they're all created equally because they come in different strengths, but the idea of using a retinoid at nighttime is right. So Daniel, let me ask you, because you're throwing a lot of really amazing information for all of us. If I'm just going to walk through CVS or Sephora, are there, and I know you don't have any uh, affiliations or, or financial obligations to any companies, I believe. Uh, are there over-the-counter retinoids that you would say, you know, this is a good brand if you're going to pick up an over-the-counter? So there are some cosmeceutical companies that are well-known to a lot of people, like Skin Medica or SkinCeuticals. You may not be able to find them at your typical drugstore, but you will find them at a high-end cosmeceutical store like Sephora. You can find them online. You can find them at doctor's offices. Those are the companies I would stick with. The Neutrogenas of the world don't really make retinoids, although there is a company called Galderma that used to have a prescription retinoid called Adapalene that, they, um, that we used to prescribe for acne. It is now available over the counter. So you can get Adapalene gel and use that as a as a retinoid over the counter, and they have that at CVS and Walgreens. And it is a prescription strength medicine that is not over the counter. So that's something that is available to a lot of patients. No, that's it's marketed for acne, not for anti-aging. So we talked about sun protection. And before I forget, because I, I know I'm curious, if I'm going to run out and I don't have time to see you in your office and get an amazing sun care protection uh, product, and if I'm running into the store as I'm heading to the beach, are there certain types of sunscreens that you recommend and should they include certain things in them that to you are important? So sunscreens come in two flavors. They come in chemical sunscreens, things like Parasol and Benzone. <clears throat> those tend to be a little thinner and people like the way they feel on the skin. And those are available by most major manufacturers and they are very good sunscreens. Some people do get sensitized by these things so they can get chemical irritant dermatitis from these kind of products. So most of us who are dermatologists like what we call mineral sunscreens or um, things with titanium and zinc in them, what we call the physical sunscreens. They tend to be a little thicker, but they're getting better in manufacturing these things in a micronized form so they're easier to put on your skin and don't feel as thick. So if you can find a sunscreen, in my opinion, with titanium or zinc in it, that feels good on your skin. And again, all the major manufacturers make it. Neutrogena makes it, Coppertone makes one, Cetaphil makes one, CeraVe makes one. These are things you can find on the counter with titanium or zinc in them. With the SPF of 30 or higher, those are my go-tos. Now, once you go beyond SPF of 30 or higher, it doesn't really matter. So if you're getting SPF 30 or 50 or 80 or 90, 
your protection is the same because none of these sunscreens really last more than two hours. So if you're going to be outdoors for more than two hours, you need to reapply. So, you know, when I was growing up, Daniel, which is before you were growing up, uh, <clears throat> I used to pick up a sunscreen and it would say waterproof. Yeah. And I, I would assume I'd go swimming with it and I was good for a little while. But I think things have changed now. Can they actually label sunscreens as waterproof or water resistant these days? You're going to see less, than that, less and less of that because I don't think any sunscreen is really waterproof or water resistant. So if you're putting a sunscreen on and jumping in the pool and think you're going to come out of the pool and have protection, you're not. You've got to reapply it. You've got to reapply but, it. But having it on while you jump in the pool is better than have, not having it on. Now, all of us, or most of us, probably not you, get to the beach or the pool. I take off my shirt. It's 12 o'clock. The sun's right above me. It's 95 degrees. And that's when I apply my sunscreen, my spray. And then I directly lay down on, on my comfortable looking uh, lounge chair. And I soak in the sun thinking I'm protected. Am I protected? So tell not. me about what should I be doing? You're not. So I think, you know, you got to be very careful with, you know, cooking your skin. And that's a very loaded question what you're asking me. Theoretically, you should be putting on your sunscreen before you are in the sun. You should be putting it all over your skin and being liberal with it. And you should be reapplying it, like I said earlier. And laying out in the sun, in my opinion, is just wrong. Um, there's no need for you to be laying out to get a tan, whether you do it slow or quick. Clearly, if you burn, it's not a good thing. If you tan slower, it's probably less negative to your skin. But cumulative UV damage to your skin is going to cause skin cancer and premature aging. So there's no doubt no about matter, that. No matter what your skin tone is to start. Correct. Correct. Now, <laughs> now, obviously, someone with darker skin is not going to burn as quickly as someone with lighter skin. And certainly, guys like me that are getting very bald very quickly and early in life on life, our scalp burns very quick. And I have very dark skin. So even I have to protect my skin and my scalp because it will fry a lot. The other argument I get from a lot of people is, oh, well, I need my vitamin D. So I know that question's coming. Let me answer that for you. You know, vitamin D is a big, vitamin D is a very big thing in, in medicine right now. You know, I know you guys as gynecologists are watching everyone's vitamin D. A lot of times we don't even know why we supplement it, but we do because it's got a lot of good benefits. But the truth is when we were in med school, we didn't even learn about vitamin D. Vitamin D didn't even exist. I mean, we didn't check vitamin D levels. It was, a, it was not a relevant issue. So now we're checking them. And the truth is, you know, for you to actually get enough vitamin D naturally, you probably do need to burn to a certain extent. And so the American Academy of Dermatology does not recommend that patients who have low vitamin D try to supplement it by getting burns in the sun. You need to take some vitamin D orally and you need to check your levels regularly with your doctor, obviously. And if you really want to supplement your vitamin D, all you need to really do is get five or 10 minutes of sun exposure to the back of your hands every day. You don't need to get completely undressed and go to the beach and burn yourself. That's a great point. And you're right. We do, I do check everybody's vitamin D and I'll tell you my practice, 70% of people are deficient in vitamin D3 and uh, we and supplement them. Right? You have to supplement them quantity. Always, yep, Why absolutely. It's a great question, and it's one I think we're all having a hard time answering because it's a newer type of vitamin that we monitor more closely than we used to. Um, but given the findings that it's cardioprotective, that it boosts your immune system, especially with what's going on currently. Now, corona, there's a lot of evidence to say your vitamin D needs to be high. To, that's to right. Fight corona. So, so, you know, I was taking 
5,000 international units daily. I'm now up to 10,000 international units now. Who knows? So I have one last question about the sun and then we'll move on. I have kids. I will say that I am at fault because I hate applying sunscreen on my kids. It's annoying. They, they don't like it. It takes time, but we do it. But sometimes I'm not great at it. And it did happen to me where I poorly applied sunscreen and one of my girls got a nice little burn. What do you, what do you recommend for us if we're away somewhere on vacation and we do get a burn? How do you recommend we treat those to just soothe the skin a little bit? Okay, so let's take a step back. I agree with you. I think getting kids to wear sunscreen is very difficult. Even my own kids, I have to fight with them. Um, I think the most important thing with kids really is protective clothing. So they make a lot of, you know, sun shirts for the pool and, you know, clothing that protects you and gives you SPF factor. And I think kids like to wear those. So that's, that goes without saying. And if you have that clothing on, then maybe you don't have to put sunscreen on your face and you can protect the rest of your body. Um, if you burn, it's really a function of how badly you burn, right? So if you fall asleep when you're tanning, which a lot of my patients do and they show up with a burn and they're just red and there's no blisters, then the only thing you really need to do is hydrate the skin. And by hydration, you can use any kind of emollient you like. I like something called Aquaphor. It's like a clear version of Vaseline, but any moisturizer really that's thick and you can reapply regularly to keep the skin hydrated so it doesn't peel off is the best thing you can do. And if it does peel, then there's not much you can do. You just keep hydrating until your skin recovers. Now, if you do get blisters, and that's a much more serious type of, of, of a burn, it's called second degree burn, then you might need some oral antibiotics. Sometimes non-sortals like Aleve or ibuprofen can help either type of burn. Um, sometimes you need a topical steroid or some oral steroids to kind of help things. So I think if you have blistering on your skin, that's a time to call your doctor. But if you're just pink, then you just hydrate and take some Aleve or some Motrin, drink a lot of water, and you wait it out. You obviously stay out of the sun while you're healing. Perfect. Thanks, Daniel. Let's, let's go back to daily routine. So we talked about applying a sort of retinol or retinoid uh, serum or low, a cream at night. Um, what else do you recommend? Okay, so I have my must-haves for, for skincare, right? Oh, so, I like that. Tell me. So must-haves. And you can incorporate this into your practice because it's really easy. So the sunscreen's a must-have. The retinoid's a must-have. Certainly your patients have got to be careful with retinoids because if you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant, we don't recommend it. A lot of my patients are using it and then they get pregnant. And usually my recommendation is, okay, now you stop. So I don't think there's any cause for alarm if you get pregnant while you're taking these medicines, but certainly if you're trying or you are pregnant, you should be using it. And, you know, maybe you can explain that better than I can with the vitamin A, you know, during pregnancy. Um, but so those are the must-haves. And then the next step is something for the morning. So I like to use a topical vitamin C serum in the morning. Mm. Now, vitamin C is very hard to stabilize and not all vitamin C's are created equally. So in that situation, I you know, usually encourage patients to either get a vitamin C from a doctor's office or to use a really nationally well-recognized brand like SkinCeutical or SkinMedica again. And I don't like to push these products, but and there's a lot of great ones out there, but those companies have been around for a long time and produce good products. So the vitamin C goes on in the morning. And what does the vitamin C do? So vitamin C has multiple properties. A, vitamin C being present is a cofactor for production of collagen. So 
The vitamin C you take orally doesn't get to your skin. So you gotta apply it on the skin. And when you're adding the retinoids to your skin at nighttime and trying to make collagen, boost your collagen production, the vitamin C presence there is necessary for you to make collagen because vitamin C is a cofactor for production of collagen. So that's really important, number one. Number two, vitamin C has natural bleaching properties. So it would help with brown spots that patients really like. And number three, vitamin C itself is an antioxidant. And what does that mean? Antioxidants are important on the skin because again, if you think about the sun and the UV rays that hit your skin, they cause DNA damage and they're breaking down skin. So the antioxidant can kind of quench those, what we call free radicals or those byproducts of the DNA damage that are being produced. So the skin doesn't get damaged as quickly. So the way I explain it is that it makes your sunscreen more potent basically and more effective. So it makes it so you have more powerful sunscreen on your skin. So generally speaking, I put a couple drops of vitamin C on the patient's skin in the morning underneath their sunscreen. And again, vitamin C has come in different strengths and properties and we can talk about all that stuff. But in general, as long as you're getting it from a well-recognized brand, you're okay. So you apply your vitamin C, you wait a few minutes, and then you apply your sunscreen. Correct. And do you, do you leave it at that for the remainder of the day or do you add on anything else? So people, you know, at that point, it becomes very different for each patient depending on preference. Some people like to use a moisturizer underneath their sunscreen. Most patients like to use their sunscreen as a moisturizer. So that can go either way. And if you want to put on an eye cream or neck cream in between or whatever else on your skin, that's fine. But those are not must-haves as far as I'm concerned. The must-haves are the retinoid at nighttime, the vitamin C in the morning, and then the sunscreen. And clearly and this the sunscreen... Should... Go ahead. Sorry, Daniel. And, and this should be started by everyone. Doesn't matter your age. So if you're in your think, 20s, I mean, you should do it. Yeah. Clearly, I don't think your 14-year-old needs to do this stuff. But I think in your 20s, that's a good time to start. And it's never so, too late. That's awesome. So now we talked about a, a nice basic routine to get through. I know we can get more complicated, but I think it's a little outside the scope. So now I want to learn about what's available. For example, in your office, Daniel, if I want to keep my skin and, and do this as a maintenance to keep it as rejuvenated as I can. So I'm, I'm doing proper skincare. What do you offer to keep my skin tight, looking refreshed, um, and looking younger? So, you know, it's interesting, Dan, because the things I'm gonna talk about are probably gonna be very similar to things you might do on the vaginal area to keep the skin looking tight because- Well, you know, I'm gonna tell you real quick, cosmetic gynecology has taken a lot of our uh, uses technologies from you guys. Uh, we, we look at what the lasers that you use and, and some of the skin prep you do before and after using lasers and we apply them to the vagina and the surrounding areas of the vagina. And it's really interesting because I've been doing skin tightening on the face for 20 years and about five years ago I started using some of my lasers in the vaginal area and it's you know people had an interest but I quickly realized that I don't belong down there doing any work and it's outside the scope of my expertise but you're right skin is skin and it responds the same everywhere so taking a step back so it depends on really what your patient wants you know the misconception many patients have is that there's one laser that treats everything right i have redness i want a laser i have melasma or discoloration i want a laser i have brown spots i want a laser and the truth is there are lasers for a lot of different things that we do but there are different lasers and different wavelengths that target different things in the skin. And again, that's outside the scope 
of this talk, but that's why when you walk into most dermatology offices, every room has a different device in it, and every device does something different. And by the way, these things change a lot, and things are getting upgraded, and we have a lot of old devices that basically are dead paperweights in our office. But we always have the best technology around to do whatever we think it is we're doing, whether it's to treat the basic things like skin tightening, brown spots, redness, um, texture poor, acne scars, these are all things we can treat. And these days, we're even doing a lot of body contouring for fat. So we're using procedures like cool sculpting to help um, areas of bulge. And there are some new procedures that you'll be hearing more and more about that actually tone muscle. That's right. It's called cool tone. You'll hear about that, it's coming, it's already out. M-Sculpt. M-Sculpt as well. So there's a lot of these things coming out and it's kind of interesting because it's actually taken what we do on the face now and applied it to other parts of the body. So to get more specific, my go-tos with things are simple. You know, on the face, if you're trying to really tighten the skin, I still am a major proponent of a laser called the Fraxel laser. It's an Erbium laser, it's a tightening laser with minimal downtime. For years, I did CO2 laser resurfacing on patients, but the prolonged downtime and risks associated with the CO2 resurfacing really turns a lot of patients off. And I will tell you, I do maybe a handful of those procedures a year now at most, when I'll do a handful a day of the other procedures. So, you know, in LA, people want minimal downtime, they want no recovery, they want to be able to go to work the next day. So we do procedures like the Fraxel that are not as invasive. Things go a little bit more slowly and you need more treatment sessions, but the end result is also very good. So I like the Fraxel laser and depending on the settings used, we can treat brown spots, we can treat fine uh, wrinkles, we can treat acne scars very, very, um, uh, very well, and we can treat off the face. So now we're treating the neck, the chest, the back of the hands is a big deal now for people. You know, 20 years ago, I didn't treat any chest, but nowadays when breast augmentation is such a routine part of everyone's life in my practice, that patients are coming in more and more and asking for their chest to be resurfaced because they've spent so much time paying attention to making their face and their neck look great, and now they want to be able to wear open tops and have the chest look great too. So we're doing a lot of resurfacing on the chest as well. Um, for our younger patients, there's another device called the Clear and Brilliant Laser. That is a no downtime uh, type of procedure that we're getting really great results with for melasma, which has been a really tough thing to treat up to now. And a lot of your patients may have questions about that because it's a very common thing seen with birth control pills and pregnancy and hormonal changes. So that's done very well for us. And for patients who don't need a lot of, you know, and don't get a really invasive procedure, but want to be able to do something, the Clear and Brilliant is a very nice procedure that has very minimal risk and minimal downtime. Um, and let me ask you, all these lasers, um, and, and I know you and I could talk about lasers for hours, um, is, and I'm just curious, and I think the audience would be nice to know too, do you follow a certain protocol to, for prepping the skin, and how do you help them recover faster from these lasers? Okay, so... The prep of the skin really depends on your skin type. For your patients who have very, very fair skin, um, there's really no prep. It's easy to do. But as your skin gets darker, the risk with lasers goes higher because skin that's darker responds differently to lasers and you can get discoloration or what we call post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So for those patients, sometimes we might use a bleaching cream in advance and really make sure they've been out of the sun Usually don't treat anyone who's got a tan, but if you've got dark skin, you've got a tan, that's a setup for disaster with laser. 
So when I treat with a bleaching cream and buy some time, your skin to kind of settle down before we do it. As far as post-care, really, there's nothing you can do to speed up recovery because a lot of these lasers, you know, that what would the recovery is dependent on is how ablative or how much damage you do to the skin or how much you're really peeling the skin, so to speak, as you're doing the procedure. The rest is really up to, you know, your human body and your and nature to kind of heal. So we might give them some ointments, you know, to help hydrate the skin, kind of like you would with a burn, but really the rest is really your body to recover and build new skin. And there's no real way to speed that up. So if you do a procedure that goes very deep and you're trying to get rid of really deep acne cells, you might have a week of recovery. And if you're really trying to just refresh someone's skin and do like a lunchtime peel of the laser, you may only have 12 hours of the peel. So it really depends on how far you push the energy of the laser. Now, do you recommend, I mean, is there a thought process on better to start if you really want to get good end results? Are you recommending these days starting with a very ablative rate laser, such as a, a fractional CO2 on the face, or multiple sessions of a much easy, uh, less damaging laser? Okay, so I think that depends on at what phase or stage in your life you show up to your doctor's office. If you're seven years old, you spent your entire life in the sun, and you've never used a sunscreen, a non-ablative fraxel may not be very helpful to you. And you may need a CO2 to get you jump-started. But the more and more I do these procedures, the more and more I find that you don't need to necessarily do a really ablative laser to get good results. Multiple sessions with a non-ablative laser often does just as well as one session with an ablative laser with much less risk and much less downtime. And so most of my patients, regardless of where they are and what stage they are in life, will choose the non-ablative laser for those reasons because they want to go back to work and they're scared. Sometimes I'm scared. I get a very young patient who wants an ablative laser and I know it's overkill. The last thing I want to do is cause more harm than good. If you're going to get one of these laser treatments done during this time period, should you make sure that you don't have any vacations planned what, a week, a few days after? How do you counsel patients? Okay, so first of all, no one's taking vacation right now. So now like, it's kind of- Backyard pool yeah. parties. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. We're seeing a lot of patients, I, I mean, more than I ever thought for cosmetic procedures right now because people have time and they're doing more work from home and they can have more downtime. But again, you know, it depends, and that question really depends on what it is I'm doing, right? So if I'm trying to get something dramatic, then you might have a week of downtime. And if I'm trying not to be very dramatic with what I do, you probably can get a day of downtime and there's everything in between. So it really depends on your skin, where you are as far as your photo damage or what you're trying to do and how aggressively we treat you. But the majority of procedures we do have minimal downtime, maybe a day or two, up to a week, 10 days max. Got it. Daniel, in your practice at this point, are you doing anything novel, different than most practices that you want to share with us? So, you know, Dave, I always like to think I'm very cutting edge because- I know I you like, are. I, know, yeah. I like to do new things all the time and push the envelope. Uh, dermatology is in a very interesting place because there are a lot of people on Instagram and on social media becoming quote unquote dermatologists who have no formal training. And I really think that's 
I think that this service to patients and this service to the profession, because you're going to see a lot of things that you think are cutting edge and that are really cool online that have zero science behind them and just don't work. So I really try to, you know, teach patients that, you know, buyer beware, look at who's giving you this information. You know, if you have a, you know, anesthesiologist doing fillers then think twice about it. You know, not that there's anything wrong about with that, but I think you have to really know who the experts are. And having said that, there are certain things we're doing now that I think are really cool. Uh, one is something called microneedling. And when we do microneedling, it's not the same as the microneedling you might see done in a Medispa. We're going very much deeper. We're doing more passes. We're being more aggressive. And so the microneedling thing is really interesting because it's really based on laser technology we've used for years, fractionated lasers, making little pricks in the skin and then simulating collagen. But instead of having a laser, which is basically a beam of light which generates heat, now you have a mechanical needle that's going through the skin at so many times an hour and you're passing all over your skin and you're creating what some people call a vampire facial because it gets bloody. But it's interesting, depending on the depth we go to, we're able to see improvement in things like acne scars and wrinkles that you might expect. But when you do superficial treatments, we're seeing some improvements with melasma too and just texture. So that's been a cool thing we've been doing more and more of. And we sometimes combine it with PRP, um, which we can talk about at a later time, but the PRP, which people use in joints and they're using it all over the body for rejuvenation, sometimes it helps you heal a little bit faster. And some people think it stimulates collagen even more. So we're doing a lot of that. Over the past couple of years, we've been doing another procedure called Cold Therapy, which uses, it's a very novel device. It's been around five years now, but it's still becoming more and more popular. People hear more and more about it. It uses ultrasound energy very deep in the skin to create a wound in the same plane that you would have if you were having a facelift. So wounds in those planes can cause tissue tightening very deep, like a pseudo facelift effect. Now it's never gonna be as good as a surgical facelift, but the idea is to mimic a tightening very deep in the skin. And those procedures are really nice because they have absolutely no downtime. And we are putting this energy underneath the skin. There's nothing to the skin itself, but it's working underneath in the subcutaneous and the fascial layers. And so you're getting tightening of the skin. So that's been very new. And in the field of fillers and you know Botox, we're getting new neuromodulators all the time, things that last longer, work faster. There are new and new fillers coming out with more site-specific functions for the lips specifically, for the cheeks specifically. We become much more, what's the word I'm looking for? Not aggressive, but we're much more liberal with the way we use fillers all over the face and the cheeks and the chin and the nose and the temples. We're starting to use fillers off the face and the chest to get tightening in the chest and things like that. So a lot of new things happening in those are, it's really exciting. You know, talking about using it outside the box, I use uh, <clears throat> fillers in the labia majoras. Uh, it's now very popular. It's called labia puffing. And I get outstanding, beautiful results with oh. dermal fillers in the labia majoras. What's the point of that? Is it a cosmetic <clears throat> or is it to improve intercourse? It's, it's aesthetics. So basically, as we age, just like in the face, you start to lose fat pads and you start to get a little bit of a saggy appearance. Same with the labia majoris, they tend to lose fat pads that are deep. And so by injecting some fillers, we give it more volume. So it gives it a much younger appearance and it also helps to cover the labia minoras a little bit better. That's really interesting. I mean, it sounds like it would be a pretty 
easy procedure to do. Such I mean, an easy procedure. Patients in and have out. no pain. That's an area that's used to trauma, so it feels very yeah, good. Yeah, sure. Gorgeous, and, and, and the effects are immediate, and, and it's, it's been something that's gaining a lot of traction in my practice. That's interesting. Are you injecting, and I'm going to turn the questions on you now. I know you don't want me to do that, but now I'm curious. Are you <laughs> injecting any of this stuff? Because we hear about this as dermatologists. It always makes us nervous. Are you injecting fillers into the, the clitoral hood and areas like that, or do you guys no. try away from all that? So I do, I do inject PRP into the clitoral hood and into the G-spot. I've never injected filler into the anywhere near a nerve plexus. Um, so I don't do that. Uh, you know, the, along the labia majoris, the, the planes are so big and, and vast that it's, it would be almost impossible to get into trouble yeah. um, if you know where you're going. No, this is, Daniel, I really appreciate you. You've given us so much information today. I, I, I would love to have you back on the podcast, discuss other things. I'm available that you do. anytime, Dave. You know, I think so highly of you. Thank you for thinking of me. Tell me about where to find you. How do we locate you? Because we want a little bit more and learn more about what you're offering people. So I think the best way to get a hold of us is just to go to our website. It's uh, www.dermsurgery.net. And our phone number is on that website. It's 310-392-1111. But through the website, the easiest way, you can book an appointment. You can send us an uh, email if you like, if you have any questions. And we're, we're always happy and available to answer. Daniel, have a great evening, my friend. Same to you, Dr. Nelson. Thanks again. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Women's Health and Beyond with Dr. David Goslin. If you found this episode informative, be sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to ask Dr. Goslin a question, please visit our website at www.davidgoslin.com or connect on all social media platforms at David Goslin. We'll see you next week for another episode.